Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. It's been almost three weeks since Hamas attacked Israel. And there are three questions that, despite having reported on this so much over the last 19 days, I'm still left asking. The first is, what exactly happened? The second is, how did it happen? How did thousands of terrorists cross over a border wall that cost more than a billion dollars to carry out the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust? And the third is this, what comes next in this already horrific war? Over the next two episodes, we are going to answer those three questions by talking to three different people. You're first going to hear from Nimrod, whose last name we can't share. He's a special ops reserve soldier who fought Hamas at several locations in the south of Israel on the morning of October 7th. His account helps paint a picture of just what happened that day in Israel along the Gaza border from a person who saw it up close with his own eyes, and took the fighting into his own hands before the army even arrived. Then you'll hear from Avi Isakaroff, a prominent Israeli journalist who's also one of the creators of the hit TV series Fauda, which is based on his own experience as a member of an elite counterterrorism unit of the IDF that operates undercover. My conversation with Avi paints a broader picture of how it happened that the most fortified and militarily sophisticated country in the world could have been overtaken in the most horrific way. In the next episode we'll release, you'll hear from Walter Russell Mead, who I think of as one of the most prophetic foreign policy thinkers of our time. There's no better lineup than these three people to help us make sense of what happened, how it happened, and where Israel and the world goes from here. You're going to want to listen. Stay with us. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the country? It has more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. Spring has finally arrived, and Fast Growing Trees is here with fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more to liven up your house and your yard. Fast Growing Trees makes it incredibly easy to order online. Your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. So you can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. 
you'll find the perfect fit for your climate and space, all without having to hire a landscaper or to drive around to nurseries in your area. Fast Growing Trees has plant experts to talk about your soil type, landscape design, plant care, and everything else you might need. And this spring, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code HONESTLY at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com when you use the code HONESTLY at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code HONESTLY. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in America? It has more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. Spring is right around the corner, and Fast Growing Trees is here with fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more to liven up your house and your yard. Fast Growing Trees makes it very easy to order online. Your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. So you can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. You'll find the perfect fit for your climate and space, all without having to hire a landscaper or drive around to nurseries in your area. Fast Growing Trees has plant experts to talk about your soil type, landscape design, plant care, and anything else you might need. And this spring, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online. They're offering up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use the code HONESTLY at checkout. Again, that's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com when you use the code HONESTLY at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code HONESTLY. This offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now, Nimi, should I call you Nimi or Nimrod? Uh, whatever is more comfortable for you, it's okay. Okay, is it okay if I call you by your first name? Yeah, Nimrod, yeah. So, Nimrod, where are you calling us from? And um, explain to us your role, if you would, in the IDF. So I can actually give my location. Uh, and my role, I'm a company uh, commander. I'm a major in reserve of a search and rescue unit and a former special forces. How many years were you in the army and what kind of combat did you see in your years in the army? Uh, so my regular service was almost five years, but all in all, I'm in the army for 21 years now, including reserves. Wow. I've seen many situations of combat, both in the in the West Bank or in Lebanon, uh, defending Israel in any direction you can imagine. You said you're in special forces. Can you give us, or you were in special forces. Can you give us a sense of what that means? Or is it like your location and you can't tell us? That means a lot of training. It's really unique training and really uh, uh, complex and different kind of training. It can be weapons, uh, paratrooping, uh, navigating, intelligence, recon, stuff like that. What do you do now in your in your life separate from the reserves? If we found you on the days before October 7th, where would we have found you? What city? Tell us a little bit about your normal life. My normal life, I live in a beautiful street in Jerusalem, the German colony, and I work right on the beach on Tel Aviv in a beautiful office that from there, I run as a CEO of a beautiful NGO that aims to change the perception of how people in the world sees Israel. We actively 
working in order to get people closer to Israel, both from the Arab world, in the campuses all over the U.S., in Jewish communities uh, from Australia, all over to Bahrain and Morocco. And the idea is to harness potential of young adults together to make a better future for everyone, definitely here in the region, but worldwide. Yeah, I want to come back to that at the end, Nimi, but we've talked a lot on our show about what happened on October 7th from the perspective of the victims and the survivors hiding in safe rooms, hiding in bushes and fields for hours on end. What we haven't done is talk to someone who fought the terrorists on that day. So if you could take us back to the morning of October 7th, starting from the very beginning of that day, where did you wake up that morning? Uh, it was a holiday. So we hosted at, at the family's place uh, near Ariel. It was a beautiful day, holiday. We were supposed to celebrate the Torah. I woke up really early and I get a phone call from my commander. And our area that we are in charge is not in the Gaza envelope. It's actually more near Jerusalem. And he says, listen, Imrod, there is missiles firing from Gaza to Israel and we need to come to the unit. Said, no problem. I was really easy. It happens from once in a while. Uh, I haven't said goodbye to anyone. I just walked towards the car without saying goodbye and drove towards Jerusalem. On the way, I'm starting to receive different WhatsApps, Twitters, realizing something is happening that in is in normal. And honestly, at the beginning, I thought it's fake. Looking at Hamas, ISIS, terrorists in Sderot, shooting at innocent people, couldn't imagine. Uh, but when, when time went by, I realized this is real, something really wrong. Who was texting you? Was it people in, was it other people in the army or was it civilians and people you just know? Both. At the beginning, it comes from different direction, but again, it's really early. I'm talking about seven. It's 26 minutes after everything is starting. No one has a clear picture at this moment. At this moment, people are dying, but no one has a clear picture. And all I'm thinking, I have to go to Gaza envelope, to those communities. I used to live there after protective edge operation back in 2014. I, I, I established an academies for leadership in order to bring youth to live in those communities to strengthen them after they they suffered from a severe demographic demographic crisis no one wanted to live there I helped reviving these communities bringing life into these communities so I also felt responsibility and of course empathy I knew what it is to live there but all I could think of I only have my pistol with 9 10 bullets and I have no uniform. So I was afraid that I will, will be stopped in army checkpost or police checkpost. They won't let me go through. And again, at this moment, I still think it's nothing. I mean, the IDF will take care of it in a second. I drive to Jerusalem really quickly. I wear my uniform and I'm outside my home ready around 8 morning. Around 8 a.m. 8 a.m., yeah. And then I get more texts. And actually, my ex-wife, her boyfriend, lives in Nir Oz, one of the kibbutzim, with his two daughters. He's inside the shelter, the safe room, holding the door, and terrorists shooting at the door, at the safe room door, and throwing grenades. And he's talking to her, and she's shouting to me on the phone, Nimrod, they are outside Nir's house, we have to get there. And I'm saying to myself, whoa, 
jumping into the car, my commander telling me, you have to come, you have to be here, you have to stay with your unit. And I'm saying, no, I'm driving to Gaza. Something is happening there. And I'm hitting the road. So just pause for a second. Your commander is telling you to sort of show up and get organized with your unit. And you're thinking, I have to get to these communities near Gaza because there are people that I know and love there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm doing. And also people that I don't know. I just, I want to be, I have to be there. People in need for help. And I'm flying on the highway really fast. Uh, one of my soldiers that I'm his commander calling me, Nimrod, are we, are we coming to reserve? And he said, no, only the commanders from now, only the officers. And he says, listen, I'm hearing there is something terrible happening in the Gaza envelope. I asked him, Kirill, do you have a pistol? He says, yes. Where are you now? In Be'er Sheva. Come meet me outside of Netivot in 35 minutes. He said, yes. I told him, Kirill, I'm not calling you as your commander, but as a concerned civilian like you. He said, no problem, I'm coming. I got there three minutes before him. I had a time and I recorded myself to my kids. I said goodbye to my kids because I knew that I won't get out alive from this moment. So I managed to record myself for 20 seconds, saying goodbye to my kids, that I love them, I will, I will think about them forever. Told my fiancé, my girlfriend, that I will think about her. Uh, and we are getting into combat. And that's it. And actually, minutes after finishing it, starting to, to think, should I said more words, more things I want my kids to know when they grow up? So it was really hard emotions to go into battle with. I was stopped at an army checkpost, telling that there is terrorists on this road killing people, anyone that goes on this road. But I knew that I want to drive anyway. I knew that at this point that there are people dying. So this guy came with a pickup truck, shouting from the car, listen, people are being butchered in Bayeri. It's a small community, it's a kibbutz. And I just jumped with my friend. We jumped on the pickup truck and crossed through this uh, army post stop. We crossed it and we fly down the road. It took us around seven minutes drive. We saw civilian cars that woke up Saturday morning, weekend, you know, going out to nature, to hike, to bike, do different activities. Left on the road, dead civilians, full families, kids, mothers, babies, all of them are shot dead in their cars. I'm, I'm not talking about one or two. Dozens of cars all over the road. It was one of the most horrifying things that I've ever seen in my life. Um, I don't know how graphic you want it to be, but uh, I've seen people that were butchered on the street, not just shot burned, naked, I've seen naked women uh, on the road, meaning that they were raped, literally on the highway. I've seen safety shelters, bomb shelters that are located in the junctions for people to be safe in them when Hamas is shooting missiles. People went in, Hamas stopped their vehicles and threw grenade inside. But I, I hadn't any time to 
to focus on it, just run towards the terrorists to stop them. We are stopping at uh, outside Kibbutz Alumim. It's a small community. Let's say around 1,000 people are living there in a shared life. And right outside Kibbutz Alumim, we are encountering a Hamas terrorist group or a squad shooting at us. This is the first interaction I had. So this was like in front of the gates to the kibbutz? You encounter- right outside the gates. Right outside the gates. I saw a, a dead soldier with a rifle. It's a machine gun next to him. I took the machine gun. I took uh, some bullets and magazines from from the special forces that were near me. And then we joined in a, a small squad of special forces. And together we st- we decided to to charge and to, to go to a battle with these terrorists to stop them to enter the kibbutz. We had face-to-face battles, really tough fight from close range. We had grenades throwing at us. We didn't have grenades. We came from home. We were outnumbered, outgunned. We lost a guy over there. Three were injured. I got hit on a ceramic vest that I found from another soldier in the chest. It saved my life. We got stuck for around three hours fighting. Now we know uh, against uh, 30 Hamas terrorists. We managed to kill each one of them. And now we know that we stopped their massacre at Kibbutz Alumim. We found on their bodies instructions and objectives what to do in Alumim. Stay massacred. They were supposed to do a second Be'eri. And we stopped them right on the fence of the kibbutz. We were fighting to save life. They were fighting to take life. So I guess the first trumps the other. You have this three-hour fight. Is your ex-wife's husband with the two children still waiting for you to, to to save them this whole time? She's telling him that I'm on the way. And from now and then she's texting me and I'm saying, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm doing my best. Eventually, after three hours, when we were about to leave this area of Alumim towards Beirut, it's a few minutes drive while the helicopter is coming to take the wounded and uh, and uh, the dead. I had time and we texted and she told me they are safe. The army got to them. At that moment, I knew that Beiri is going through a massacre and I have to go into Beiri. So uh, after helicopters taking them to hospital, you know, they landed right next to us. We humped on the jeeps and drove to Beiri. It's a few minutes drive from one community to another. It was surreal. It's like a movie. Smoke everywhere, shooting everywhere, from every bush or or behind the tree. You can have a terrorist with a, an AKA-47 or an RPG shooting at you. But we are driving. We have one mission: to go to Berlin to save lives. Keep saving lives. On the entry to Kibbutz Beri, we've seen horrific sites. 
what happened there. Hamas took time of killing, brutally killing people, torturing, raping in the most, uh, it's hard to me to say the word creative ways that you can imagine. At that point already, the army started to come. But we were special forces, so a lot of them were giving first response in Berry, but they were waiting for us as people that are highly trained for us to to go in. And we did. We got in Berry. And Berry was a, was a piece of hell that Hamas made for a few hours. And uh, one of the things that I realized is we had a window in time where the Jewish people didn't have an army. Never mind what the circumstances are. We'll have time to, to learn why. But for a few hours, the Jewish people did not have an army over there. And they showed us what is the result of a Jew without an army to protect him. Holocaust can come in a second, in a heartbeat. If we won't be strong, unite, on guard, saving ourselves. That's what I have witnessed. I have, I have witnessed a small Holocaust, small in terms of numbers and proportions, but not in terms of evilness. The motivation was the same. One of the things I've been thinking about since October 7th is how our ancestors survived. The comfort, if there is a comfort for Jews around the world in this moment, is that we have Israel and that we have an army and that at least in America, not so in the, for the Jews of Europe, we can go and get armed. But our ancestors would survive Kishinev and all of these horrific pogroms, some of which we don't even know the names, and there was nothing they could do. It's unimaginable. You know, I learned history and I'm learning from history, not just in college. And I live my life as a part of a chain, not just now a spot in time, but something much bigger that goes back and, and looks at the future. And, you know, when I read about the pogroms against the Jews, when I read Bialik writes his poem. City of Slaughter. City of Slaughter. When I read it, it's the same. But like you said, they had nothing to protect them. And here, I guess people did the same. People prayed, people said Shema Israel, which is a Jewish prayer that you say right before you die. People negotiate their life. People offer to give money. People beg. They decide to kill this one, rape this one, and spare this one and just take him to Gaza. You couldn't know. I, I just read an account of a mother in Barry who was in a safe room for 20 hours and explained the terror she felt, the pure panic of accepting death and then sort of zooming out from her life and giving gratitude for her life. When you're in the midst of a fight with Hamas men, is there a feeling or is it a like, are there emotions that you remember from that day as you're seeing the horrific sights in Be'eri? Are you able to even comprehend what you're seeing? Like, what is the emotional experience of October 7th for you? I am, once I am there, I'm getting the picture really fast. I understand everything. I understand the magnitude. I'm not realizing they kidnapped so many, but there is one thing in mind 
stop them. Now it's time to break. Now it's time to be a shield and to stop them from murdering civilians. If I felt emotions, it was sadness, deep sadness for what I'm seeing and for the fact that I'm going to die. It didn't stop me. It didn't stop me from run, from being very sharp, accurate, but I was sad at the same moment. Do you know people who were killed or kidnapped? I know several of people who killed from different circles in my life. Everyone in Israel knows. The numbers are so high. And yes, I know people that kidnapped, but I can't I cannot say about it from different reasons why. Who are they and why? One of the most maddening things to witness right now is that there are activists and journalists here in America and around the world who deny that these things that you saw with your own eyes took place. They say babies weren't really beheaded, that no women were raped, that these stories are Israeli propaganda. It's like we're watching a Holocaust denial in real time. What do you say to those people? This is crazy. They have to choose a side. I mean, this is a corrupt moral sense of moral. I don't know what, what energized these people, but honest people died in the most horrific ways. They just need to come and see. You know, every day, the army gets a lot of journalists into those kibbutzim actually to prove we were massacred. This is hypocrisy. This is weak moral fiber. We need to prove that we were massacred on that day. And those people are poor people that need to ask themselves big questions. I don't know how they live with themselves, but if you dig around these people, you, you'll find pure, classic anti-Semitism. That's it. They would have never dispute if it would happen in some other place in the world. Never. For those criticizing Israel's response, who say that Israel, despite the fact that in three weeks it hasn't had any kind of ground invasion, that it's being too aggressive, that there are too many Palestinian civilians in Gaza who have been killed, who throw around the term disproportionate. What do you say to those people who claim that Israel's response has been too much? few things. One, I don't understand proportions in time of war. I, I don't know what does it mean. Should we go in and kill, I don't know, thousands of Palestinians to retaliate? Innocent ones? Babies? We are not doing that. Hamas is hiding inside areas where there is babies and families and not letting them leave. If there is a guilt uh, side here, it's Hamas. Hamas proven itself to be a terrorist organization. We don't have a problem with Palestinians. We don't have a problem with kids, with families, as Israelis, as Jewish people, we seek for life. We seek for freedom for everyone. You know that as much as I am. That's what we are taught from the beginning of days. We are now here to bring justice, to destroy Hamas as a terror organization, not just for Israel, for the world. I think a lot of people who have been glued to the news since the massacre of October 7th are wondering what Israel is going to do next. They have said so many things about so much saber rattling, so much promise that they're going to bring the hostages back, that they're going to eliminate Hamas. And yet here we are almost three weeks later, and there's been no ground invasion. There's been a lot of mixed messages about what's going to happen. I know that you're probably very limited in what you can say, but do you have a sense of what comes next in this war? 
so listen, it's it's really being talked about all over the media. I cannot really say what's the plans or I, honestly, I even don't know. I do know that I trust. I have to trust my government and the IDF to do whatever we can for one goal, to annihilate Hamas threat and Hamas terrorists from this world. They have lost any right to exist anymore after doing something like that. And this is what we're going to do, not just for Israel, also for the Palestinians. If we want to have any chance, it's also for the Palestinians and it's for the world. When an evil energy like that occurs in one place in the world, don't be mistaken. Tomorrow, it's outside your home, in America, in Belgium, in France, wherever. So Hamas is not just Israel problem. Nimi, last question. You said at the beginning that you run an NGO that connects people around the world, specifically in the Middle East and North Africa, to work with Israelis and Arabs to try and bring them together to understand one another. How do you think about that work in this moment? Like, are, are you still hopeful that that's possible? Everything became more difficult. But yes, I'm optimist. This is my nature. I'm optimist that we can connect young people from all over the world that simply want to have a different future. But I do know that people definitely from the Arab world will have to make a decision. There is two sides, like I said before. There is a side for look for these values, Western society, and there is a side that praise and glorify death and destruction, and you need to choose. I'm so happy to see that so many young people, even in the Arab world, are choosing are choosing our side. I'm not just saying Israelis, but but the side of life. But I do know that for us here in, in Israelis NGO, we're gonna have a lot of work when this war will will end. Imrod, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for this opportunity to share my story. And uh, and hopefully we'll have a better future for, for our children. This is what we're trying to do. Thank you. After the break, Avi Isakaroth explains how he understands how all of this happened. Stay with us. Listeners of Honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show, foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever. Its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, and she offers an intimate inside view 
of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current friends and foes issue at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal.org forward slash honestly. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Avi Zakharov, welcome to Honestly. Thank you, Barry, for having me. It's been 19 days since thousands of Hamas terrorists accomplished the unthinkable and crashed through Israel's borders to carry out a proto-Holocaust. Questions about how this attack happened are not going to be fully answered for many months, maybe years to come. Bibi said in a speech this week, the Israeli prime minister, that everyone will have to answer for this attack, including me, but that will only happen after the war. At the same time, it's been almost three weeks. And like many people in the world, we here at the Free Press are left with one huge question, which is, how did this happen? How did this possibly happen? And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Yeah. So honestly, after 19 days, we don't really know, even here in Israel, what really happened. I mean, we hear that there will be some investigation committees that will check everything, what went wrong, etc. But right now, everyone are on a fight, on a war. So there's no like trying to go back and understand what went wrong. We understand that they managed, I mean, Hamas managed to conceive us in the most shocking way possible because we're not talking about a small group of like six people that managed to, to break through the fence and that's it. We're talking about in between the first two waves, okay? We're talking about in between 1,000 and 1,500 people Nukba warriors or terrorists that are crossing the border at the same time with motorbikes and jeeps and whatever, and no one knew about it in Israel. And this is the most shocking thing for us to understand. When you were creating Fauda, the TV series that's on Netflix, that's the greatest show I think ever made, one of your script writers, from what I understand, pitched you a storyline in which dozens of Hamas terrorists storm the border and take a kibbutz by surprise. And you said you thought the idea of an invasion from Gaza was too far-fetched. Why did you think that was too far-fetched? The story was that we were sitting in one room... uh... Leo Raz, Noach Stroman, the chief scriptwriter, and myself. And Leo was uh, throwing this idea, and Noach really liked it. And then I said, like, guys, come on, it's not realistic. And, you know, sometimes my job, because I was uh, a Middle East analyst for so many years, so I'm the kosher uh, keeper. In other words, you judge what's realistic and what's not realistic. Yeah, I'm trying to keep the authenticity and, you know, if it's realistic or not. And for me, I was just asking, come on, guys, you know that there's no way that tens of people, dozens of people will get to the border with no early, earlier indication that the intelligence won't know about it. There's no way that the cameras on the border won't see these people coming and then immediately, you know, send the Air Force and kill them all. There's no way on earth that even if they manage to get to the fence, so the IDF soldiers will shoot them and kill them all. 
But I guess that the conception, my mistake, was also Israel's conception, is that we were thinking about dozens, five, ten, twelve, maybe dozens maximum that will go for an operation like that. No one, no one dared even to think or to dream of 1,500 people. And at the end, they got to more than 2,500 people that were inside Israel territory, including the mob that were the second or the third wave after the first Nukba terrorists got in. The mob meeting, I just want to clarify that for people. By that, you mean just ordinary Gazans who wound up streaming over the border and participating. I don't think everyone knows that that happened. So if to just to, to give a kind of an overview of what really happened, around 6.25 a.m., there are, there's a massive rocket shooting from Gaza towards not only the southern parts of Israel, but also towards the center, Tel Aviv, etc. I woke up when my daughter knocked on the door and said, there's a siren, the siren, get up and go to the security room. And I didn't get it, like, what's going on? It's a holiday, Simchat Torah, Saturday. There are not too many soldiers on the border because it's a holiday and many of them are on vacation. But the rockets were just a kind of a cover for this huge infantry invasion made by Hamas. First of all, we're talking about, let's say, in between 1,000 and 1,500 Hamas, their best special forces, Nukba, that went in through some holes in the fence that they made with explosives. At the same time, while they were bombing the military bases on the border. So they were storming the military bases, especially one in particular, which is the main headquarters of uh, IDF forces in Gaza's area. It's located in the Reim area. They bombed it from the air and immediately tried to get to this place because they knew that the eyes and the ears of the IDF are located there, meaning all the cameras, meaning all the soldiers, men and women, that their job was to watch the cameras and to report to the air force, to the artillery, to the, the tanks, that something is going on. And when this headquarter was under heavy fire and the threat of being taken by those Hamas terrorists, so they, they couldn't, they couldn't manage the war. They couldn't tell this guy go to there or this guy go there or the Air Force, please. They did manage, of course, to call some Air Force support, but not enough. And the IDF itself was in a complete shock because all the soldiers on the, on the border were still in their bed or at home on vacation. So we're talking about almost more than 100 soldiers that were killed, boom, right at the beginning. That allowed more Hamas terrorists to go into Israeli territory and attack the villages and the towns that had now no defense, no IDF, nothing. So they just went in. Now, each and every one of those villages has those uh, security teams, okay? In the places that, that the security teams managed to uh, fight the Hamas terrorists, so they stopped them. In the places where those security teams were hit right at the beginning, so then came the massacre. And that allowed them to go into the villages and the towns to call the mob. Meaning, at that point, they called people in Gaza to come and to loot and to kill and to massacre and to rape and to cut the heads of people and just to do the most terrible atrocities that one can imagine. That wasn't something that went out of control. At the beginning, I thought that I, I, I really thought that that was kind of a thing that got out of control. 
But then slowly, slowly you understand that that was a well-planned, organized attack, including the atrocities. Like these people were giving orders to kill, to cut the heads of people, to cut the livers, their hearts. You know, the IDF showed us some notes that they found on the bodies of those terrorists that were killed over there. They had strict Sharia orders from Islamic, I don't know how to call them, but just terrible people that were kind of tutoring or monitoring people what to do, and they were telling them, cut their heads and take off their livers, just like that. One thing we know is that Israel had been granting tens of thousands of work permits to people in Gaza to come work over the border. And there's been reports that some of the people who had those work permits were essential in sort of mapping out the lay of the land of the kibbutzim and the towns for the terrorists. Is, is that accurate? I don't think that that was accurate. But first of all, let me say that, yes, in the last two years, even more than two years, we have 18,500 people that were allowed to come from Gaza in order to work in Israel. So please, when people talk about the siege over Gaza, tell them you are lying. It's not only that. People could have gone out from Gaza through the Egyptian border. People went out to medical treatment inside Israel. We're talking about thousands and thousands that went every day through the Israeli border to get some medical treatment inside Israel, although they have hospitals in Gaza. We're talking about electricity, water, food supply, commerce, everything that went through Egypt and Israel. The siege is a myth. It's a lie. It's the, one of the biggest lies that Hamas invented, and everyone was following it for years. But there was no siege. And the best proof that I can give you that is that suddenly, on October 8th, when Israel closed everything, suddenly you hear, hey, you don't give them water and electricity and working permits. But they were, wait, I thought that there was siege. So what happened to the siege, so-called? So that's a kind of a proof for how Hamas's myth and lies became a kind of a common truth in the international community, in the US, in Europe, everywhere. The second thing that I didn't find any kind of evidence for that is that the people that were working inside Israel were the ones that gave the, the information. I mean, most of those villages and towns didn't have Palestinian workers that came from uh, Gaza. They had some workers, Bedouins, Muslims, uh, Arab Muslims from Israel. And even them were slaughtered by Hamas. You know that during this operation, this is something very important to keep in mind. This attack wasn't only against Jews. It was against Jews, but they slaughtered 24 Muslim Arab Israelis. And still six are missing or abducted in Gaza. So you think, okay, you hate Jews. You hate Israelis. Okay, fine. We know that. But why on earth would you go and kill Muslims? They killed women with hijab. They killed small. They killed girls with hijab. They knew that they were Muslims, and still they killed them. Avi, the, the border between Israel and Gaza, I think, cost more than a billion dollars. It's incredibly high tech. My understanding is that a bird could land on a part of that fence, and the entire IDF would know. There has been talk about reports, early reports, not verified, about a cyber attack. Is, does that hold up? Have you been hearing that as well? We've been hearing that. We've been reading about that. But honestly, like Barry, just like I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, we don't know 
really what happened over the, over there till now. We do know that Israel have three big balloons that has all those technology and cameras. And one after the other in the last few weeks, they stopped working. Israel didn't understand what's going on. And they, they said, like, after the holidays, we're going to take care of them. And that was stupidity. This is one thing. Then they attacked all the technological equipment that Israel had on the fences first thing including the special cameras that could have to told you, you know, there's a bird landing. So immediately they went on those technological equipment that Israel had on the fence and then blew up the fence. They knew about all the security measures on the fence. They learned the Israeli border for months, if not for years. If you ask me, they, they gathered information for around two years. They knew about each and every force, each and every headquarters or a base, a military base, and they knew a lot about the villages and the towns. We know that they found them with maps of not only places around the border, but Kiryat Gat, for example, which is pretty far from the border. It's like 30, 40 kilometers from the border. We found them with maps of military bases pretty far from the border. They wanted to get there. So when you understand that, you understand how big and huge their plan was not just to take one small village but to massacre masses and masses and masses so they did kill 1400 people and they did kidnap more than 220 and now they're going to pay the price beyond the physical security failures of that day the failure of the wall the failure of technology Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the intelligence failure. Why do you think that Israeli intelligence failed to get a sense that a major catastrophic event like this was happening? I think that Hamas managed to deceive us. They knew that we were tapping some phones. They knew that we were tapping some communication equipment. And I can only assume that they were using that in order to mislead us. Uh, to deceive us. We thought, you know, maybe, and, and again, this is something I don't know, I can only assume, that while our SIGINT or our uh, NSC call, so-called A200 unit was listening to them, what they were hearing is, hey, we just want to come and make a picnic, um, rest on the border, but we do not mean war. They were selling us an idea as if they do not plan a war, they don't want to have any kind of an escalation over there, while all this time they were preparing for a real war. And at the same time, you know, we can talk a lot about the intelligence failure, but there was also a big, major political failure. Well, it's interesting that, we, that we're talking about the idea that Hamas deceived Israel, that Hamas deceived Israel. And, and here's why. Hamas tells the world who they are. They say in their charter that their goal is the elimination not just of Israel, but of the Jewish people. Let me read you a quote from Hamas's official charter. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees, and the stones and trees will say, oh Muslims, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. It can't get more clear than that. And Israel, most of us in the world think of as an incredibly realist, hard-nosed, looking clearly in the faces of its enemy. So how is it that there was such a failure, I guess the word would be, of like imagination 
in this case. Because you don't imagine that those people really plan to eliminate the state of Israel. You think, wow, they must be very stupid if they think so. And by the way, I'm one of them, you know, I, I had the chance uh, as someone who was there on the ground in Gaza till 2007 to meet all Hamas's leadership from the founder Sheikh Ahmad Yassin through Ismail Haniya, the head of Hamas, Mahmoud Azhar and others. They didn't hide any of their plans. They were saying that we will eliminate the state of Israel. And I was like, come on, you know that it's not going to happen. And they said, no, 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 it is going to happen. I didn't buy it because I thought that that was so stupid. Because you believed that Israel was so strong. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that they were very stupid. But more than that, and I think that this is one of the biggest failures of the state of Israel. We thought that we can deal with Hamas. That if we will strengthen Hamas, we will weaken the PA. And by that, we will not negotiate with the Palestinian Authority. So that was the biggest crucial mistake that we've done through the years from since 2009 till today. We created the monster in our own hands. Let's pause there, because if you go online right now, there's a lot of things you can read that are from Israel's critics or anti-Zionists or even anti-Semites saying, how can you guys blame Hamas when Israel funded Hamas? So let's stay on that for a second. I want you to explain to people the most generous read of why Israel had the policy that it had vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. Israel wanted to have some kind of stability in Gaza. After some escalations and escalations, the thought was it's better for us to pay them the money to keep economic prosperity in Gaza, and by that we'll keep Hamas calm, nice, um, moderate even, and at the same time, and this is the approach that our prime minister was leading, we will weaken the Palestinian Authority. And by that, we will not need to negotiate with the Palestinian Authority over peace, and we'll have this rival, Hamas, that we can control. The policy was we can ride the tiger or the panther. That was our mistake, that we thought that we can control a terrorist organization like Hamas by strengthening him economically, offering him the Qatari money that was $350 million a year, and by that, they will be nice and quiet. The same thing happened to us with the workers. Why did we allow the workers? Because we thought that economic prosperity will bring stability vis-a-vis -vis Gaza. It didn't happen. I'll go back also to 2011. Israel decided to release 1,027 prisoners in, in exchange for one Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. That's the Shalit deal. That was one of the biggest crucial mistakes that Israel has done because that made Hamas huge. It made him so strong. All Hamas's leadership in Gaza today, the military wing, you will see faces of those former prisoners that were released in Shalit's deal. So yes, the Israeli government, in a very not clever policy, let it became such a big monster. Michael McCall, uh, the chair of the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee, has said that Israel received a warning from Egypt, I'm sure you've read this, of a potential attack from Gaza three days before it happened. Netanyahu denied this claim, and there was sort of a bunch of back and forth in the press. Do we know the specifics of the intelligence that Egypt has? Do you know why it wasn't heeded? Or is it a common thing for Egypt to say, hey, there's something coming, and for Israel to just kind of say, eh, we get these kind of warnings all the time? 
I don't know, honestly. I know that it was reported uh, also in my media outlet, I mean, the media outlet that I'm working for, meaning Ynet and Yediot Acharonut by Smadar Peri, who's a very experienced and uh, accurate uh, journalist. Uh, so she doesn't like, she's not like one of those, uh, I don't know, inventing stuff. She's very uh, trusted. And she she also reported about the, this kind of a call that was between the Egyptian intelligence and the prime minister. I don't know what happened with this. I don't know if it's completely right, but maybe they gave us some kind of a warning, a kind of a general warning that our government didn't really buy. Many, many people I know in Israel, even though they're focused primarily on the hostages, the war that they're girding themselves for, the grief of of having every single person I know has been touched by this, every single person. And yet the other thing that they're holding alongside that is absolute rage at Bibi and the government. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that feeling inside Israel and the extent to which people are blaming Bibi and his government for creating a sort of internal crisis inside Israel that maybe projected a weakness to its enemies, including Hamas? I think that one of the most crucial mistakes that Bibi Netanyahu did was his insistence on passing the legislative coup, as we define it, or the reform as he defines it. And I remember myself like six weeks after this whole thing with the legislative uh, thing started, I spoke in the big demonstration in Tel Aviv in front of four, uh, 140,000 people. That's big. That's very big. Uh, for me, it was the first time. And I was very emotional, I must say. And I said something very simple. As a Middle East analyst, I said that uh, this rift inside the Israeli society that Netanyahu is creating is going to make the sharks smell the blood. And I've mentioned Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. They are the ones that are waiting for this moment, that we will be weak, that our society is going to be fragile. So please, I begged him in this speech, stop it. We still can stop this thing. At the end, the rage now is because of the understanding that he was focusing so much about what? About what exactly? I mean, who cares about this right now? Does he care about it? One of those uh, friends of his, Rotman or Levine, they care about it or they care about our lives and about our survival in this region? So that was so stupid. Then again, the conception, the conception that he sold to us, and he said it, he said it openly and clearly, we should strengthen Hamas and weaken the PA in order to prevent the Palestinian state. So he did it, and you know what? He made this monster. He helped this monster to become such a big monster. And the third part of this rage is what, about everything that happened since the war started. Since October 7th, we see that the government ministries, all the people that were so obsessed with the legislative um, coup, right now, all those politicians 
the ministers are not really working. They are lost. We don't know where they are. MIA, missing in action, instead of going out there and helping the people that live in the periphery of Gaza, instead of helping people all around Israel, we don't know where they are. They became so silent and quiet, so they're missing. Listen, on the second day of the war, Monday, I went to Gaza periphery with a Brothers in Arms. That's a kind of a civic organization that is trying to help now. They, they were the, the, one of the founders of the demonstrations against Netanyahu. And immediately when the war started, they decided we're going to stop all the demonstrations and go and help people. And we were bringing out people from the fire zone into safety areas, into places that were out of reach from those terrorists. And this is what we've done as civilians, you know, 50 years old civilian like me, that is going into Sderot to pick up a family, to bring her out of the danger zone, because the government is not there to help them. Because the government wasn't functioning. And when you hear the rage of the people in Sderot, the ones that were voting for Netanyahu, what they had to say about him, you understand where is this coming from. They feel deserted, they feel betrayed, they feel that the government forgot about them. Let's talk for a minute about the 222, I think is the number, hostages that are in Gaza right now. They're from dozens of different countries. One report this week said that more than half of them have foreign passports, and and these are babies. They are children. They are the elderly. Many of them, as we mentioned before, aren't even Jews. What is Israel's play here? I mean, we, we, you mentioned that Gilad Shalit, a single soldier held for more than, I think, four or five years by Hamas, released in exchange for more than a thousand prisoners, including hardened terrorists. Based on your experience in Dubdivan, an undercover counterterrorism unit that I assume would work in things like this, like, what do you think Israel can do? Because presumably these people are being held in the terror tunnels that run all like a spider web under the Gaza Strip. So it seems like an impossible situation. These people are there. Israel would be walking into a trap. And yet in a country with a mandatory draft, the idea that you would allow 222 Israelis to be disappeared forever is unthinkable. So take us into the mindset of, of how Israel would be thinking about how to solve this unthinkable catastrophe. It's, it is a catastrophe, and I'm not sure that right now we have a clear understanding of what to do. I think that, you know, our decision makers didn't decide yet how to treat this problem, because it's a huge problem, and there, there are no good solutions in this problem. I mean, there's not, you know what, let's release all the prisoners, all the Palestinian prisoners in Israel, and that's it, it's gone. You know that there will be some uh, ramifications, I think that's the word, for this kind of a decision. It's going to be terrible. But if you're not going to release those thousands of Palestinian prisoners, so it's also going to be very bad. So again, it's in between the bad and the worst, and you need to decide which is worse. They are probably hidden somewhere in the metro of Gaza. I mean, Gaza has a, an upper city, and Gaza has an underground city. The metro, this is how we call it, just imagine the subway in New York. This is what we find, and even bigger than that. Now, in 2011, in the Shalit's deal, the, lead, the current leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar, he's the one that was released. He was the leader of the prisoners back then, and when he was released after 22 years in prison, 
He stood there in Gaza Strip and he said in front of tens of thousands of people, I promise you, my prisoner brothers, we will never forget you. He fulfilled his promise. We, as Israelis, we forgot his promise. That was our mistake. We thought that, you know, now that he's married, that he has kids, maybe he became more moderate, now that he's kind of the prime minister of Gaza, so he needs to take care of people, that he cares about his own citizens. And honestly, Barry, and maybe that's the, 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 the saddest thing to say here, they don't care about their own people. Hamas don't give a damn about Palestinians. If 40,000 of them would get killed over there, that's a blessing for Hamas. Why? Because they would say all of them are civilians. So blame Israel for that. And people in the U.S. and in Europe forget that the reason for all this thing, for the killing of people, whether in Israel or in Gaza Strip, it's what Hamas, it's the massacre that Hamas led on October 7th. Hamas this week released two hostages, Yocheved Lifshitz, 85 years old, and Nurit Cooper, 79 years old. Last week, they released two others, two dual citizens, Judith Ranan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie. Why these four? Help make sense of this to the listeners and to me. If there are nine-month-old babies there, how do they decide who the priorities are? How does this work? No idea. I mean, honestly, I don't get completely. Of course, they're very old women. So they're trying to show their good face to the world. Oh, you see, we release old women. Why did you take old women as prisoners of war? What is this? But now they're trying to show the more positive face or whatever. Look how uh, humanitarian we are. Look how nice we are. And maybe that's their attempt at the end of the day to delay the ground operation as much as possible. So they do not release many of them. But every time they say, okay, we're about to release two more, wait. And then the ground operation is delayed over and over and over. And we're on the 19th day when we understand today, Barry, that the prime minister, our prime minister, is not really, doesn't have an appetite for a ground operation. And that's the understatement of what we see on the ground, of course. But we know that the IDF and the Minister of Defense, uh, Gallant, want to go to a ground operation, while the Prime Minister is saying, hold on, we need to wait. Maybe because of some American pressure, maybe because of the prisoners, but at the end of the day, he's not interested in that. And his claims, or his people that are close to him, this is what they're saying, is that it's too dangerous, it's going to cost the life of many soldiers, and we don't know what will happen the day after, meaning what's the exit plan. Now, again, just imagine that all of Gaza Strip is underground. Yesterday, there was a huge bombing of the Israeli Air Force in El Jala Street. El Jala Street is like a very main street in Gaza. I used to go there a lot. And except for the first boom of the first mushroom that you saw, suddenly you get to see those following by explosions and you understand that they are hiding over there tons and tons and tons of rockets and people including the leadership of Hamas and this is what Israel is going to face when it's going to enter Gaza. Bibi has, there's been a lot of bluster, a lot of saber rattling about we're going to bring them hell, we're going to, I mean it, there's been speeches, right? But it's 19 days and there's been no promised ground invasion. Now, 
there are a few reasons, as you just mentioned, why that might be. First of all, an indecisive prime minister in Bibi, who's always been indecisive on military decisions. The second is an America that's trying actively to restrain Israel for fear of a wider conflict. And the third is potentially that the wider conflict perhaps is already here and Israel doesn't want to lose many, many of its best soldiers in a ground invasion. Can you make sense for us of how it can be that 19 days after arguably the blackest day in in Jewish history since the Holocaust, certainly in the history of Israel, it seems like there's a paralysis that's set in. Help us understand that. I think that you've mentioned all the reasons. I think that there's some kind of a combination between a very hesitating prime minister regarding the use of uh, military force, especially ground invasions into Gaza. He knows that there's a very heavy price for that. He knows that, you know, if more soldiers will get killed, it's over for him. His political destiny is pretty clear right now, but I think that he fears that if, you know, the IDF will stuck be stuck in Gaza, so that's, that's it, it's over, he's gone. Then, of course, you have the security considerations, meaning, okay, I can start a war in Gaza, but what will happen in north with Hezbollah? Are they going to start a war? They're bigger, they're way more stronger than Hamas. They have even more rockets and more missiles, very accurate missiles that can get to each and every point in Israel. So that's a completely different story. You know, I, in Tel Aviv, when I'm here, I went to a restaurant this noon in order to have lunch. So business, almost as usual, it's not as usual. In the north, if there will be a front in the north, it's completely a new story, a new arena, and it's not business as usual. And then, of course, you have the American pressure of, you know, what's the exit plan? Let's say that the Israeli army will go into Gaza, huge incursion, and will take it in five days. No more Hamas government. What's the day after? Who's going to rule Gaza? Who's going to take care of the sewage, electricity, and water for the two million people that are living there? So... One option is that you would let Hamas go back, but you don't want that. You understand that they are the biggest threat right now. Then the second option is that the IDF will rule Gaza, but we don't want that. We don't want to stay in Gaza. No one wants that. The Egyptians, they don't want Gaza. The last option is to try to bring back the Palestinian Authority, which is totally weak, totally corrupt, and the gamble is so big to bring them back. And at the same time, Mahmoud Abbas, and I reported about that yesterday, demanded, he preconditioned, you know, if you want me to go back to Gaza, okay, fine, but you will need to renew the negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority or the PLO. You will need to say that the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will be part of the Palestinian state. So Netanyahu will need to say clearly, I'm going for negotiations over a Palestinian future state. That will also bring his political end. In preparation for a ground war and also for the bombings, Israel warned more than a million residents of northern Gaza to go to the south. The UN, the Red Cross, a number of governments around the world have condemned this, saying it's created a humanitarian crisis. And obviously you have activists and so-called intellectuals all over the world claiming that Israel's trying to carry out an ethnic cleansing or a genocide. What do you say to those people? I'm saying to these people that this war has been forced on Israel, that Hamas 
hates their own people. Hamas is using these people as human shields. Hamas is not letting those people to leave the north parts of Gaza and to go down to the southern edge of Gaza. Why? Because they want them to get killed and that the, the whole world would blame Israel for that. 700,000 of them already left the northern part of Gaza. But just yesterday, I saw so many civilians that were killed in those attacks against those tunnels with terrorists inside. And why? Because Hamas pushes them to stay in. And some of them are stupid enough to stay in. Now, this is not ethnical cleaning. Israel is trying to prevent the killing of innocent people, of civilians. It's not ethnical cleaning. It's trying to prevent the death of innocent people. And now you're blaming it because it is trying to prevent the death of those people. So please decide. Are we doing ethnical cleaning? Are we doing what exactly? We are trying, if, if Israel won't call them to withdraw to the southern part of Gaza, you'd blame it for, you know, killing them all freely. But it's not. And that's the, the craziest catch-22. Whatever Israel is doing, it is blamed for being the bad guy. Whatever, Hamas is killing 1,400 people and then some stupid people saying this is because of Israel's policy towards the Palestinians. There's no justification for this kind of a terrorist attack. There's no justification for atrocities, for rape, for cutting the heads of people, for cutting their, their legs and arms and whatever. So please stop it. Stop being anti-Semitics. American Jews right now are going through a shattering of our illusions about our fundamental safety here in America. On campuses across the country, the thin line, if it ever existed, between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism has completely fallen away. Jews are being barricaded in the libraries last night at Cooper Union with a pro-Hamas mob banging down the door. Just today in my hometown of Pittsburgh, tomorrow's going to mark the five-year anniversary of the massacre at Tree of Life, and there's graffiti outside of Jewish homes at the local high school. I could go on and on and on. Are Israelis also living through a sort of shattering of certain paradigms that they had held on to? Just to give one example, many people I know who believe so strongly in the idea of a two-state solution now see what happened in Gaza and are now completely reassessing whether or not that will ever be possible. Is that something you f feel yourself, Avi? Um, and how has this changed your conception of Israel's place in the region, Israel's ability to live alongside Palestinian neighbors? My perception didn't change dramatically because I was saying for years, for years, that the Hamas is a threat, is an enemy, and we should fight it and not help it. I was watching in front of my eyes and I was writing about it over and over and tweeting and talking about it, that this policy of strengthening Hamas in order to weaken the PA is terrible. I still think that if we will do huge changes, we can create a partner on the Palestinian side. But we will need to keep in mind that the Muslim Brotherhood movements, not only in the Palestinian territories, but all over, whether they are in Qatar 
or in Turkey. And of course, the Shiite organizations. These are the people that we cannot talk to. I'm not one of those guys that are saying all the Arab Muslims are bad. No. I'm saying that the fundamentalist, the Muslim Brotherhood, the ones that want to eliminate us, not only us as Israelis, but the Western world, the liberals, the, the ones that want to promote some liberal ideas, and I'm not talking about liberals like in the US, I'm talking about liberal people like in the, the old times, we should fight them. We should go on a war with them and eliminate them. There is no coexistence, not with Hamas, no, with Hezbollah. And yes, maybe right now we don't go into a war with Hezbollah, but we will face another war with Hezbollah. Because Israel and the Western world cannot bear the existence of those kinds of movements. And we need to understand that. And this is what I woke up from. Maybe I also fell into this conception that it's really nice, you know, to have those Hamas there in power. They are the worst, they are the less worse option. That was my conception. The less worse option. Now we understand that Hamas is the worst option. One of the things that I think is so existentially terrifying about this war is the idea that Israel is at war against an idea. Hamas could be defeated, but then another group will pop up that has the same idea. What, how do you fight an idea? Listen, we fight the military capability. We fight the rule of this organization or, or an idea. At the end of the day, you know, the target today is not to eliminate the idea of Hamas. It's to eliminate its military capability and to eliminate its regime. It's not mission impossible. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that we've done as a state is to allow this terrorist organization to become a statehood. Hamastan in Gaza. I know that some people think that it's Palestine. I see all those... Yeah, I don't know how to call them. Those people that don't understand what's the difference between the West Bank and Gaza. They call it Israel is fighting Palestine. No, we're not fighting Palestine. We're fighting Hamastan. Hamas took over Gaza in 2007 in a coup, a very brutal coup, killing 160 members of Fatah, Palestinians that were from their own people. We're talking about a terrible dictatorship that is fighting people, young people, especially people that are not really religious. And this is what it does. And now we need to bring them down. We need to bring them down as a government. We need to bring them down as a military organization or an army. And this is what we need to do. As an idea, of course, it will continue to, to exist. But I think that after the fall of this regime and the, and the military capabilities, so even the idea will get weaker. Avi Zakharov, thank you so, so much. Thank you very much, Barry. Thanks for listening. We have been working tirelessly for the past three weeks to cover this war, to help make sense of what it means for Israelis, for Palestinians, for the Middle East, and for the world. If you want to support the work we do here on Honestly and at the Free Press, there's just one way to do it. It's by going to our website, thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com, and becoming a subscriber today. Your support makes our work possible. So thank you. See you next time.